O Lord, our God, you know us better than we know ourselves. As we come before you now, believers and doubters alike, we all share a deep need, for we are all lost without your grace. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our troubled thoughts. Give us true repentance. Forgive us all our wrongs. Transform us by your spirit to live for you each day, to learn to serve each other, and through the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord, to come at last to heaven. Amen. Let me pray, and then Des is going to read from John 12. There's a bookmark in the little blue Bible if you want to follow along with that. Otherwise, the words will be up on the screen. Let me just pray. Father God, just uh, we pray that you would soften our hearts um, to your um, word. Uh, we pray that um, yeah, you would speak to us at the deepest level of our being, um, that you would break down any hardness that is there and um, truly enable us to receive um, your life-giving word uh, today uh, in John's Gospel. We um, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you today from the Gospel according to St John and the first verse of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was uh, uh, given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in the bag. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the, for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. 
Friends, if you've um, been travelling along with us, you might know that uh, our original reading this week was planned to go further than that, but this was all I could get my head around this week, and there's plenty of it uh, in there for us to think through. So we're just going to read these first 11 verses, and we'll pick up from there next time when we're able. Um, But every now and again, you might have heard this question, right? What do you give the person who has everything? Uh, What do you give the person who has everything? A quick search revealed such ideas as this so if you're ever after a a particular Christmas gift for that special person you could pick up a crystal studded water bottle um, just so you can drink your water in style you know Um, uh, you could get I I found this um, online this $20,000 pen so you know some people are really into their pens so why not get the guy who has everything the person who has everything a $20,000 pen um, I even saw a gold-plated coffee maker um, for those of us who are addicted to our coffee and, again, want to drink it in style. Um, but the idea behind that question, right, is the idea behind it is um, you've got to find something to impress the person who's really hard to impress, right? Uh, you've got someone who's just, you know they're going to be hard to impress because they've got everything, they've seen it all. You have to find something that'll impress that person who's hard to impress. I imagine uh, it must be a huge stress, right, in, in billionaire families when the, when the birthday rolls around each year and they think, oh no, here we go again. What can I give him this time or her this time? Um, well, what we're going to focus on today is this incredible account in John's Gospel of one woman's gift to Jesus. Um, on one level, you, you might be able to, you could think about this gift in that kind of a way, right? Uh, this Mary kind of scouring her house anxiously for a gift for the man who has everything, right? If there's, any, is any, if there's anyone who has everything, it's Jesus. All through John's Gospel, that's been hammered home again and again. Uh, here is the eternal word made flesh. The Son who is equal with the Father, God himself who's come into his world in order to save it. So maybe, you know, on one level you could think Mary is thinking, right, Jesus is coming, how on earth can I impress him? (laughs) Impress the man who's really hard to impress. But of course, you know, uh, that's not actually what's going on at all here. That's not what's going on at all. Mary's not anxiously trying to impress. This isn't the gift for the one who has everything. This is a gift for the one who has given her everything. A gift for the one who has given her everything. And it's totally different. It changes everything about what's going on here. It is a grace-soaked gift. Grace-soaked gift. Uh, We just read chapter 11 last week together and the, the story of Lazarus, Mary's brother, being raised from the dead. And what Jesus did for her. And we're reminded of that in verse 1. It will come up on the screen. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. We read at the end of last week that Jesus, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, sort of went out to the countryside again, just to lie low for a short time. Uh, but now he comes back and our ears prick up because Bethany's right next to Jerusalem and we know everyone in Jerusalem's sort of got their eye out for Jesus, ready to kill, to, to take him in. Um, 
But he comes to Bethany and to this, uh, to this family, um, uh, uh, the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead. Um, in chapter 11, we read last week, Jesus had given Lazarus the most, not just Lazarus, but his whole family, the most incredible gift. Right? These two sisters, Mary and Martha, had gone in that one moment when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. These two sisters had gone from overwhelming grief and sorrow to overwhelming thankfulness and joy and wonder and praise of Jesus. Like you imagine yourself into that situation. And so when Jesus shows up at their village again in Bethany, they do what most of us would probably do, right? They throw Jesus a party. This guy who had given them such an indescribable gift. They, they chuck him a party. Yeah, verse 2. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And so far, so good, right? Um, the family who'd received Jesus' gift of life, they organised this dinner for him. And you can imagine the scene, right? You can kind of picture Lazarus there retelling how he got sick and died and uh, you can imagine kind of his, uh, his laughter as he re- remembers how when Jesus you know, called him through death, he kind of waddles out of the tomb in his, uh, wrapped up in, the, in, his, in his grave clothes like a mummy. Uh, and, uh, you can imagine the kind of stories that are getting told. You can imagine the smell too, the smell of all of that love, that feast that Mar- Martha is cooking, uh, if you've ever been to one of these great, then you, you can just kind of imagine that smell that's around um, in this feast for Jesus. But then something happens that would have stopped, uh, would have stopped any stories Lazarus was telling. <laughs> would, have stopped, um, would have stopped everything. It would have overpowered any smell that Martha could have um, brought out from her cooking. Um, Mary, we kind of find out, presumably she'd been helping with this whole dinner, but she disappears and then comes out and does something utterly, utterly shocking. Verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I just noticed a few things about this the thing that Mary does. It's an, and I mentioned it earlier, it's an extraordinarily generous, extravagant thing that she does. Um, Nard apparently was a, was a really rare perfume from India and we're, we're um, sort of told explicitly that it was pure Nard, so they want us to know it's the best quality, this really rare perfume, not mixed with anything. Uh, Mary had about half a litre, um, roughly that might not seem worth much um, but we find out later it was worth a year's wages um, it almost certainly would have been the, the treasure of their family you know, the, the thing that they would have kept locked up uh, the thing that they would have known so long as they had that they were alright so long as they had that they had security they had you know, perhaps it was like an heirloom, an ins- a, a, a family insurance policy. 
As long as they had it, they'd be okay. That's how precious this nard was. And Mary, and maybe she's planned it before, we don't know. Maybe it's a completely spontaneous thing. Um, but when she's faced with Jesus, she sees Jesus sitting there and is overcome with everything that he's done for them. Um, he sees, she sees the one who gave life back to her family. That's what Jesus did to her. She takes this treasure, this, this treasure, and she pours it out on him. Um, some of the other, the same event is recorded in a couple of the other Gospels, and they say that Mary pours it over Jesus' head. There's no contradiction there. It's just this, you can see the amount of it would have soaked down to his feet as well. So you can get this image of the, uh, Jesus covered in, in this incredibly expensive perfume. It's extravagant, this gift. Um, but it's also so humble, isn't it? Um, John wants to highlight, and maybe that's why he sort of focuses on the feet thing, he wants to highlight Mary's humility uh, in this posture of worship. She gets down on the floor um, and she wipes the perfume all over his feet. Now, feet have always been smelly things. Um, some of the strongest smells I've ever smelled have, been, have come from feet. And more so in the ancient times, so um, where everyone wore sandals and they went walking along dusty, dirty, dung-covered <laughs> roads. Uh, and foot washing was a thing, but you'd only get the servants to do it um, in uh, maybe a more kind of rich household. And here's Mary. She's making this public statement that she is Jesus. She's like a servant. She is a servant to Jesus. It's extravagant. It's, it's so humble also really intimate um, you know the phrase to let your hair down right um, and uh, especially um, in these times uh, Jewish women would never have their hair down in public uh, it would always be worn up to let your hair down was a sign that you were um, with your kind of intimate um, family you'd only do that at home um, it's, it means you're in intimate company. Um, it's almost, it would have been scandalous actually, it's almost scandalous how intimate this scene is with Mary letting her hair down, going down to Jesus' feet, wiping the perfume all over his feet with her hair. But she's not, she's not thinking primarily about social conventions, she just has eyes for Jesus. It's not a romantic thing, although it would have raised eyebrows. It's extravagant, it's humble, it's intimate worship of the Son of God who speaks life. The Son of God who gave life back to this family. But not everyone's happy. You read on verse 4. But one of his disciples... In some of the other Gospels, we find out Judas kind of brought other, other disciples in with him, but here Judas is highlighted. Uh, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. It's a little bit disturbing, isn't it? On the face of it, what Judas says um, is a good concern. If anyone showed compassion for the poor, it was Jesus. Um, But Judas uses this pious reason to mask what's really going on in his heart. He wasn't really concerned for the poor. In fact, he was a thief, we're told, something that they kind of no doubt found out after he'd betrayed Jesus. It can be so easy to do, can't it? To say the right things, even to sound really righteous, but underneath it all, just be trying to justify our own sinful desires. Uh, For Judas, it was his greed that he was trying to justify, uh, but it can be anything. But notice the utter contrast between Judas and Mary. Mary's whole action here, everything she does, is grace-soaked. It's grace-soaked. She has been overcome by the glory and goodness of Jesus. She knows that he has given her everything, and so to pour out her family's treasure on him was that was easy actually but Judas his eyes aren't on Jesus and his glory and his grace they're on himself they're kind of turned inwards on himself and his own desires and friends whenever that happens you will never be able to understand grace it'll always be a mystery to you it'll always be something that outrages you Um, because you'll always be thinking in economic terms, right? Penny-counting terms, tit-for-tat terms. You'll always be thinking, yes, I'll give you so much, Jesus. I'll even follow you, but I'm always going to have one eye on what's in it for me. Uh, Judas does his sums, and he's indignant about this utter waste. He uses... He uses the poor as his reason why he's indignant, but he's a thief, and so I think we're kind of meant to pick up that he's also thinking, well, for every dollar we can give to the poor, I can pocket some myself on the sly. And so he's he's looking at this perfume dripping onto the floor, and all he can think is not, what a beautiful act of praise to Jesus. All he's thinking is, as he watches each drop onto the floor, you can imagine his mind going, thinking, He goes, one more, $1,000, another $1,000, dripping onto the floor. Can't we at least get a drip tray? Uh, He's he's followed Jesus around for years, but he still doesn't see who he is. Instead of his eyes being drawn in wonder to this man who is God, his eyes are turned inward to himself, and Jesus knows it. Um, He knows what's going on with Judas And he defends Mary straight away. Verse 7. Verse 7, Jesus replies, Leave her alone. And then he says something really interesting. For Jesus, there's more going on here than just Mary's devotion to him. As great as that is, it's kind of hard to know whether Mary knew this or not um, um, about this deeper significance. Um, but she may not have known it, but what, what she did was meant by God to have a deeper 
significance. It's more going on than just her devotion to Jesus. Keep reading in verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See what Jesus is saying there? He, his own idea about himself was that he stood at the crossroads of all human history. That this was a unique moment when the God who spoke all things into being, who had entered his creation as a man, would let himself die on the cross for the sin of the world. Um, what for Mary possibly was just an, an extravagant act of praise to Jesus and thanks to him and devotion to him um, turns out to have this deeper meaning. It was preparing Jesus for his burial. Uh, he knew that with he knew that by coming to Bethany, he was entering his last week. He knew that within a week he would be hung up on a cross. Uh, he knew that this now would set in motion a series of events that would lead to his own his own death. He knew it and he did it willingly, he did it knowingly. And that's why he says to Jesus, to Judas, you'll always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. You'll always have the he, he's not saying, don't worry about the poor. Okay, if you go away from this passage thinking that that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's saying to Judas, and maybe there's a bit of a rebuke in his voice, okay, Judas, well, you have such great concern for the poor. Great, you'll always have them. Uh, you'll always have the poor in your life to, to look after and to give generously to. Good. But this moment will come only once. You won't always have me. And so the scene ends with this large crowd, if we read on. In verse 9, this scene ends with a large crowd basically gate-crashing this party. Um, verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Um, so this crowd finds out that Jesus and Lazarus are there in Bethany, just you know, a, a short distance from Jerusalem. And they all want to see them, of course. Uh, and you notice how Lazarus is like the, the world's best evangelist. Uh, uh, but the thing about Lazarus is, if you read the story, there's, abs there's nothing special about him. We don't have any of his words recorded for us. And the only thing that, you know, that's remarkable about Lazarus is that he, he died presumably so young. Um, we have no idea whether he was an impressive speaker. We have no idea how sophisticated his theology was. But what he, what he is, just by being there, he's like this walking, talking, living monument to the life-giving power of Jesus. And the people around him are stunned by it. All, all Lazarus can, what, he, what Lazarus can say is not believe this message because I'm so 
thorough and articulate. All he can say was, I was dead. I was dead. And now I'm alive. <laughs> really? I know that. <laughs> I was dead and now I'm alive. And that simple witness of Lazarus brought crowds and crowds of people to Jesus to cross over to him. And you get this irony right at the end there too, right? We've seen this through um, this guy, Lazarus, who'd already gone in and out of death. The chief priests say, right, we better kill him off again, you know, this time for sure. Not, they didn't kill him the first time, but you get the point, right? It, just, let's just make sure he's really dead so no one else can hear this story about Jesus. Um, but they're fighting against the one who is the resurrection and the life, aren't they? And they just don't see that. It's a stunning, beautiful, intimate account here in John 12. It's a, it's a picture of lives that have been deeply transformed by God's grace, by God's gift. Martha's meal, Mary's gift, Lazarus's testimony. It's like this kind of little microcosm of Jesus-shaped lives. All these lives that have been transformed by Jesus' grace. Especially, friends, in contrast to Judas and his his kind of outward show of piety that's really just about himself. This story is a model of grace-driven worship and sacrifice for Jesus. Um, no law could generate such generosity from Mary. No, no law could do that. Um, Lazarus didn't bear witness to Jesus because he had a category in his mind of a scary category in his mind of evangelism and he just thought, oh, I better do that because so, <laughs> I know I'm supposed to. That's not what's going on for Lazarus. All of this deep transformation comes about because it comes about before they have, because before they have done anything, before they've done anything, uh, they've already received Everything. Before they've done anything, they've already received everything. Whatever they give, they give as those who have already received from Jesus. They give not, uh, they're, they're not giving to the guy who has everything, anxiously trying to get something that will please this authoritative or hard to please person. They give so that they give to the one who has already given them everything. And we already saw last week how, friends, the story of Lazarus, this whole story, which this is kind of the next part of, the whole story of Lazarus is just a sign pointing to something far more wonderful, pointing to something far more real, pointing to something far deeper. It's a sign that points away from itself and to Jesus and his death and resurrection. And friends, I just want to um, encourage us that uh, seeing that reality, seeing that this is just what happened to Lazarus and how it transformed these people's lives, 
is, is just a sign that points to the greater reality of what Jesus has done on the cross. That is, um, that is the key, actually, to living this kind of transformed life. Um, Mary could give like this because of the indescribable gift that she'd already been given, her brother Lazarus, back from the dead. Um, this was one extraordinary act of worship. But Jesus, we've already seen, Jesus, according to Jesus, what it was really doing was preparing him for his own death. His own death. To, for a far greater gift, a gift not just for one family in one place, but a gift offered to every family in every place. Jesus' greatest gift of life through the cross. And friends, that gift is greater than the gift that Mary and Martha received when they got Lazarus back from the dead. And I wonder if we actually believe that. That gift, that what happened to them was just a signpost pointing to the far greater gift of Jesus' own life and death and resurrection for you. That gift of God to you through faith in Jesus, that is yours if you are trusting in him, that gift is more wonderful, more captivating, more spectacular than if you were to see your dead brother walk out of his tomb. Friends, I think that you, we will only believe that, really We'll only believe that um, if we know the reality of our own, our own death, our own spiritual death. Um, I, I fear that people can be part of churches, um, even a part of our church for many years, even say and do impressive things, and yet, like Judas, have proud and self-focused hearts that have never yet acknowledged and been broken by this reality, that the sin and wickedness in your own heart that you can't escape and that you can't blame on other people rightly puts you under the judgment of God that leads to death. Spiritually without Jesus, you are as dead as Lazarus was, as incapable of saving yourself. And friends, grace will never move you unless you see that. It'll never move you like this, like it did to Mary, unless you drop your defences and you admit that before God. You'll always be serving out of duty and not delight. You'll be self-defensive about your own sin. You'll find yourself more and more bitter when you don't get back what you feel you deserve. But how could you do that, right? <laughs> how could you possibly lower your defences? Wouldn't that be too much to bear? Too exposing. The thought of being brought into the light like that. Well, it would be, actually. It would be if we didn't have the one who we can let our hair down before. If we didn't have Jesus. He is the only one that you can be completely laid bare before. 
the one who sees everything and yet loves you still. The one who says to his people, to those who recognize their sin and trust in him, the one who says to his people, come out of your grave. I have taken your pain and death on myself, your sin on my shoulders, and now I call you out to really live. So friends, think about that treasure in your life, that, that maybe for you, uh, that thing that you've sectioned off and said, okay, God will give you this and this, but not this. This I couldn't live without. It's my security, my peace, the thing that I know if I have, I'm okay. That's what this perfume would have been to Mary. But she came to see that Jesus was her real security, her real peace, her real treasure. Uh, If Mary poured out her treasure for Jesus because of his gift of life to her, how much more can we who have received his far greater gift? But friends, God's grace, it is God's grace that is the power behind this. And that's just so important. Um, just want to reflect on one more thing here. This, this is a grace-based, a grace-driven, a grace-soaked sacrifice. Um, as I was kind of preparing, I, I realised it would be it'd be very easy actually to turn this into a sermon that was this a strong call for you to sacrifice, <laughs> separated from grace. But. Uh, that would be more of a kind of Judas mentality, actually, I think, than a Mary mentality. Grace means we have everything already through Jesus. We have everything. So uh, everything we have is God's. It means we can stop counting the pennies. We can give ourselves in his service happily and freely. And some of us do need to grapple hard with, that, with this. Um, with those treasures that have gripped our hearts and that we are unwilling to give over to Jesus. Those things that we think are our security, those things that in the end take Jesus' place in our life. In the light of the gospel, in the light of the reality of your sin and death and of God's amazing grace, and the life that he freely gives to you, that is what will enable you to pour it out, to pour out whatever that is. That relationship, that, that, that image that you're seeking, that promotion, that bank balance, that whatever, fill in the blanks, none of it will satisfy you in this life and none of it will carry you over to the next Only Jesus can do that. And friends, some of us do need to be challenged by that. But always, we all at different times need to be challenged by that. But we all always need to hear the reality of grace that drives that as well. Grace also means that we can rest well that we can enjoy being with Jesus. And some of us need to hear that too. Grace 
frees us from a kind of fear-driven service that leads to burnout. I was thinking about this. Actually, there's, I, that can look very noble, but I think there's probably the sa- exactly the same thing going on here. It's just for some of us, our idols are the ap- approval of others or uh, kind of the need to um, justify ourselves. And it manifests, you know, Calvin said our hearts are idol factories, and that's, I think it's very true. We'll always find something else put in Jesus' place. But grace frees us from that. It frees us from a kind of fear-driven service that leads to burnout. You've, you might, maybe you've heard this phrase, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Um, <laughs> I'd rather burn out than rust out. And it kind of appeals to certain personality types and certain Christian traditions. And Mary gave up her f- perfume, so what are you giving up, right? You know, Twisting your arm with a kind of masochistic glee. The problem with that kind of thinking is it's just as graceless and duty-bound and penny-counting and despairing as Judas was. Burning out can look noble. It can look as noble as giving a year's wages to the poor, but still be driven not by grace, but by fear and anxiety and selfishness. It will hurt the people around you. Far better than burning out is burning on. Finishing the race that is set before you with perseverance, not stumbling exhausted just after you've started. Grace-based worship and sacrifice means both we can rest when we need to, we can recognise our humanity and weakness, we can live within those bounds, but, and here's where this challenge comes to us, isn't it? But not for our own sakes. Not for our own sakes, but so that we can continue to pour ourselves out for Jesus for as many days as he gives us in sustainable and Jesus-honouring lives. I pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge now that we only come before you as receivers We don't come before you as people who have lots of ourselves in our hands to offer up to you as if you'd be kind of pleased by that in a way that can make you more pleased than you otherwise would have been. We come to you only as receivers who in our own sin are separated from you and dead in our sin and transgressions. We come to you as that. We acknowledge that, Father. Please... Lord, we pray that each one of us will be able to reckon with that today. And that in the light of that, the glory of your grace would have this same deep and transforming impact on us that it had on Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lord, give us that confidence and certainty to know that what we have through Jesus' death and resurrection, is even is far greater than what they had. Far greater. Help us to treasure Jesus, we pray, not out of fear or anxiety, um, but because we know ourselves as those who have received your kindness to us. And we pray you might help us to do that. Keep us from keeping our eyes, taking our eyes off him. Help us to run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.